The passage of scripture we'll be looking at this morning is found in the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 21, and this morning we are looking at the first 14 verses. This is the word of God. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Do you have the qualifications to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ? Are you qualified to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ? Did you know that the requirements for the job are listed very clearly in Scripture and they're modeled after the most, one of the most effective witnesses for Christ in the history of mankind? It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me read to you the first five verses. Here are the requirements to be an effective witness for Christ. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, based on that passage, do you have the qualifications to be an effective witness for Christ? Do you have a lack of a lofty speech, a lack of eloquence? Do you have weakness? Do you have fear and trembling? 
Do you have a lack of the wisdom of men? If so, then the job's yours. You're qualified to be an effective witness for Christ. The plain truth is that the main reason that we make so little effort at being a witness for Christ is that we feel so unqualified. And as we study John chapter 21, we're going to find out that's the point. We are unqualified. In one sense, in this description of this miracle of Christ, the last miracle that John records, we have a demonstration that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's really the point of the resurrection appearances, to prove that Jesus Christ is bodily raised from the dead. And we saw the last couple weeks how important that point is. But the kind of miracle that he does tells me, and I think makes it pretty clear to all of us, that the kind of miracle he did was meant to teach a lesson. It's not just to demonstrate he was alive, but it's to teach his disciples about the calling that he had placed upon them and the job that they were to do. We know this because of the similarity between this miracle at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry as we compare it to an extremely similar miracle at the very beginning of his ministry when his disciples are first called to follow him. Let me take you back to Luke chapter 5 for a moment. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus is teaching the masses on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and the crowds are so great that he actually has to step into some fishing boats alongside the shore and teach from the boat. And and let me pick up the reading here with where his teaching ends. It says in verse 4 of Luke 5, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You see the incredible similarity between the two miracles from John chapter 21 and Luke 5. And it's a perfect bookend to the training period for the disciples where Jesus called them to leave many of them from the work of fishing for fish full time to become fishers of men. And he spent three years both in precept and example training them how to be effective fishers of men. But now, Jesus Christ has been crucified, and he has been raised from the dead, and he talks about going back to the Father. What does this mean for this calling? What does this mean for the job he's given him to do? What's their mission now? And I'm sure that during the 40 days in between his resurrection and his ascension, there was great confusion and uncertainty about what the future looked like for the disciples. And we see here in John 21 that they have gone to Galilee to wait for him. That's exactly what Jesus had told them to do. Go to Galilee to wait for him. And in verse 3, Peter, he's there with six other of the remaining 11 disciples. Peter's there with six of them, several of them the same men that were there at that first miracle at the beginning of Christ's ministry. 
And he says to his friends, I'm going fishing. Now, I know that we have some avid fishermen in the congregation who say, so what? Isn't that what you're supposed to do on any beautiful morning? I'm going fishing. But for Peter, I think it may give us some insight into where his mind and his heart was. He had been a fisherman by profession. He had committed his life to that profession. But then he gave up everything to follow Christ. And now he's not sure what the future holds, especially Peter. Remember, Peter is the one who denied Christ three times. And even though obviously Christ has received him, has appeared to him repeatedly, still he's uncertain of his standing with the Lord, I'm sure. And we, I'm guessing that because the second half of chapter 21 that we'll look, out, look at in a couple of weeks, that's when Jesus pulls Peter aside and restores him fully causes him to affirm his commitment to Christ and to his mission three times to love his sheep. And so Peter, I'm guessing, is still unsure, and he's thinking, well, maybe I just need to go back to fishing. I know how to do that. Well, they spent all night on the Sea of Galilee. I know it says Sea of Tiberias, but that's another name for Sea of Galilee, which is, again, the same sea that, that, that we're talking about in the first miracle at the beginning of Christ's ministry. They spend all night casting their net out off the boat and pulling it back in. And something really unusual for these experienced fishermen happens. They don't pull in a single fish. They tended to fish at night because that was the most effective time to fish. And also it's because the markets were open in the morning. And that way they could pull the fish in from the sea and, and bring them right into the market. And they'd be very fresh for the people that came to the market to buy them. So this was normal, but... But when they got all the way to the morning, they had caught nothing. For these experienced fishermen, this is unthinkable. What's going on? You can imagine what Peter's thinking. Well, I was a lousy disciple, and now I can't even fish anymore. But suddenly, Jesus appears on the scene. The risen Savior is there on the shore. And what we immediately realize is that this failure in their fishing was caused by Jesus himself. Now think about that. We fail in our callings, our ministries, whatever they look like. We fail often because of our sin or because of our neglect or because we're caught up in the things of the world. We sin for things that are our fault. You know, we commit things that are our fault and we fail in ministry quite often. But what this says to me is that sometimes we fail in ministry because Jesus sets it up that way. Why would he set up a situation where we would fail? Well, it's to teach us, and that's really the point of this passage. He's teaching his disciples about what it means to be fishers of men. In a sense, he's recommissioning them to that call. And here we have the perfect bookend to their original call to be fishers of men. So what's the lessons? What are the lessons of this big catch? The first lesson is you need to trust in the presence of Christ. If you're going to be effective in sharing Christ, sharing the truth of God's word, sharing the gospel, then you need to trust in the presence of Christ every day, every moment. It's interesting that they don't recognize Jesus standing on the shore, and we don't know if that's because of some supernatural blockage somehow that 
he kept them from recognizing him. That's possible. It's possible that his, as we've seen the last few weeks, it's possible that his resurrection body was slightly changed from his, there's continuity certainly, but maybe there was some change. We get the sense from Mary Magdalene's encounter with him and the two men on the road to Emmaus that maybe there was something different about his resurrection body that made him not easy to recognize. Or maybe it's just as simple as the fact that it was early morning, the light was not completely up, the sun was not completely up yet, and there was fog along the shore, and maybe they just weren't able to recognize him 100 yards off. But in verse 5, Jesus, as to them, a stranger, says, Children, do you have any fish? <laughs> do you have any fish? These experienced fishermen who spent all night with empty nets, and he calls to, to their attention their failure. You know, that's one thing about Jesus that, you know, there's many things in Scripture that tell us and make it clear to us that Jesus was the Son of God, or he is the Son of God, that he is God in human flesh. We, we, we have many testimonies of that in Scripture, but one of the testimonies I find fascinating is the questions that he asked. Jesus asked questions the same way God asked questions. God doesn't need to ask questions. God is omniscient. He knows everything. So when God asks a question in Scripture, you know it's not for his information. So then why does God ever ask a question? Well, let me give you some examples of when God asks questions of men. Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve rebel, reject him, eat the fruit. And God comes into the garden and he says... Adam, where are you? Not a lack of knowledge. God knew exactly where Adam was. Later he asked Eve, Eve, what is it that you have done? He knew exactly what Eve had done. Later he says to Cain, where is your brother? You see what I'm getting at? When God asks questions, it's not for his information. It's for us to examine ourselves, our lives, our hearts like Adam and Eve and Cain, to deal with where we are, to deal with our sins, to deal with our failures. Remember Job, at the end of Job, Job is such a man of faith all the way through, but then he finally gets so frustrated and he starts asking questions of God. And you remember how God responds? God asks him questions. He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? God's questions are meant to reveal us to ourselves. And so Jesus asks these disciples Don't you have any fish? He knew. He wanted them to reflect on their failure. Jesus wants his disciples to learn that according to their own strength and their own efforts, they could do nothing when it comes to fulfilling the mission he had given to them to fish for men. That they would have to wait until he was with them. That it's his presence that made their ministry successful. From that point on, it would be his presence that made it successful. Jesus purposely waited until the morning. He didn't show up at midnight. If they, you know, remember, they think he's some stranger on the seashore. Some stranger on the seashore said, You should do whatever. They would say, Hey, we're fishermen. We've been doing this all our lives. We know what we're doing. What do you know? If he'd showed up at 3 o'clock in the morning, they probably would have said the same thing. But here it is, sun is up, and they still don't have a single fish. And so Jesus is about to tell them to do something, and guess what? They're going to do it because they've been humbled. They've failed. 
In Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Don't ever forget, whether you're talking about your personal ministry of evangelizing the people around you, of bringing the truth of the word of God to people around you who need to hear it, or if we're talking about our church's ministry, that it begins with an awareness of the powerful presence of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the work begins, and that's where it's based. That's the source of the work. That means that our worship services, the times we gather together like this on the Lord's Day, and other forms of worship, when we worship together, that's the heart of our church's evangelism. Because that's where we see the glory of the risen Christ revealed in his word. And we bow before him in in praise and awe and thankfulness. And it's in that state of mind and that state of heart that we're willing to set aside our reliance on the things of this life, on our abilities, the resources we have, and to rely upon him alone because he is all we need to do the work that he's called us to do. Now, when I say that our worship is the key to our evangelism, I'm not talking about evangelistic worship services in the old sense of the word. I'm not talking about, you know, tent revival crusades where you're you're trying to reach the unbelievers in town and calling them in. You know, we want the unbelievers to join us in worship, but the focus of our worship isn't on the unbeliever. That was the problem with the old decades ago, the seeker-sensitive service, is that the service was focused on the unbeliever. Our worship services must be focused on Christ. And as we see his glory, as we hear his gospel, as we bow before him, then we're transformed and equipped and prepared to go out and change the world around us. Our evangelism starts in our worship, and it's driven by our worship. A man who spoke in an evangelism seminar many, many years ago, I never forgot one sentence that he said. He said, most people in the church are motivated by either gumption or by guilt. And what we should be motivated by is grace. When it comes to sharing the gospel and taking the word of truth out to our community and to our campus and beyond, we must be motivated by a vision of the Lord of grace, not by gumption or guilt. There can be no success in fishing for people that doesn't begin and continue with prayer and dependence upon Christ, that's the source of our strength. That's the source of our effectiveness. Remember back in chapter 15, Jesus taught these same disciples. He said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's the same message. Our trust must not be in our own efforts, our own gifts, our own resources and techniques and programs. The key to success in taking the word of God to our community and to our campus and to to the world beyond that is to remember always the promise that goes with the Great Commission, which is, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you notice that it's John again, the disciple whom Jesus loved that's referred to there? That's always John. It's John again who has the discernment. You know, Peter's the guy 
who jumps out in front of everybody and say, let's go after that hill, let's, 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 let's go get it done. But John's the guy who sits back and just has this gift of discernment, and he has the wisdom. And John is the one who first says, you know what, that's the Lord over there. I recognize the Lord. He recognized him not because he saw his facial features, it's because he saw his power at work in their midst. That's why he recognized him. That's got to be Jesus, because look what's happening. Secondly, we must not only trust in the very presence of Christ in our midst, but we must trust in his word. The word of Jesus Christ is powerful. Inherently, it's powerful. Verse 6, Jesus tells them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Some fish, that is. Now, can you imagine how silly that sounds to these experienced fishermen? They've been casting the the nets on the left side of the boat, and Jesus says, take those nets and throw them on the other side of the boat, and you'll you'll catch fish. These fishermen say, you've got to be nuts. What is that, like two feet difference in the water? How, How could that possibly make a difference? didn't really matter what side of the boat. He could have told her to throw that net up in the air and it would have come down with 153 large fish. The point is, it was his word reflecting what he was able to do and reflecting his authority. And the lesson here for us is that effectiveness in evangelism, sharing the gospel, sharing the truth, counseling, ministering to other people... The effectiveness lies in the power of the word inherently, not within us. It's not about our technique. It's not about our methods. It's about believing the message that we've been given and being confident in the message we've been given and following our Lord's instructions. It's good to be trained in sharing the gospel, and there are some good training methods out there good training seminars, good books you can read to learn how to share the gospel more effectively. You can practice. You can memorize scripture. All those things are very good, but always understand that the power to transform lives lies within the word itself, not within your abilities. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Just stop and think about that for a second. Every time you share the word of God with another person, whether that person's a believer, unbeliever, or where they're at in the spiritual spectrum, every time you share the word of God with somebody, The power of God is there. And it is working. It is affecting. It has an impact on those who hear it. Now that doesn't guarantee that they're going to fall on their knees and profess Christ and and, and join the church tomorrow. That's That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when you share the word of God with anybody, the word, this powerful word by itself, it will change that person. Not necessarily for the better. What the scriptures tell us is that the word of God affects the heart. And if the heart is hard, what the word of God tells us is that it makes that heart harder. And so if you have a heart that is unreceptive to the truth, a heart that is in rebellion against God, that rejects the Lord, then the word of God is actually going to make that person harder. 
But if the Spirit of God has prepared that heart, if the soil of the heart has been plowed by the Holy Spirit, it's more like planting seed in well-toiled and well-fertilized soil. It'll take root, it'll grow, it'll bear fruit. The power is within the Word itself to bring about that change. That's one thing you can know, and that is to encourage you that when you share the Word, know that that person is not going to walk away unchanged because the word is powerful. And that's really the testimony of the early church. Over in Acts chapter 2, we have this very familiar description of what the early church was like and the success of its ministry, but listen to the elements of that success. It says in verse 42 of Acts 2, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were all selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those that were being saved." These were people who gathered together under the authority of the word. They heard the word. They shared the word. They worshiped. Their lives were driven by worship every day together. And out of the joy of the grace they had been given to the gospel, they went out into the community and just shared the word. And the Lord added to their number every day. That's how churches grow. That's how ministries become successful if they're based in the presence and the word of God. And that's what we work for here is to make the basis and the source of everything we do the worship of the present Christ and the power of the word of Christ. I have no desire to drive you people out into the community through guilt, exhorting you to have more gumption, to try harder. But I love the job of just showing you the glory of the Lord and his word and allowing the Spirit to cause that to sink deep into your hearts, and then to drive you out to share that word with others, that you can be a part of the work he's called us to do. It says that, it tells us, statisticians tell us that 80% of people who come and continue to come to a church and eventually join a church, 80% of those people were invited by a neighbor or, or loved one, family member, or friend who just invited them to church consistently. That's how they got there. It's because Christ is changing you and you're anxious to go and see that same power change the people you care about. So the effectiveness in ministry comes from trust in the presence of the risen Christ and trust in the power of the word of the risen Christ. And finally, effectiveness in ministry comes through trust in the call of Christ, the effectual call of Christ. Look at verse 11. 153 large fish in a moment come swarming into that net and they struggle to even drag it to the shore now if you ever want to have kind of a fun activity do uh, you know read some commentaries look up on some interpretations from history of what the 150 what's the significance of 153 fish there are some really wild and wacky ideas out there about why it's recorded that there were 153 fish I don't think it means anything more than that there were a whole lot of fish there. That's what the number 153 is meant to impress upon us. A whole lot of fish, all kinds of different fish, 
And you know that because actually Scripture gives you the interpretation back in, in Luke chapter thir- or Matthew chapter 13. Jesus uses that same analogy to talk about the work of the church. He says in verse 47 of Matthew 13, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and set down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That that's the work of the church, is the casting of the net. And there's going to be so many fish you can't even imagine coming in. And yes, some of those will not be true professions. Some of those will not stand and prove to be true on the, on the day of judgment. But so many of them will. They'll be real children of God that Christ has brought there. Just like he brought those 153 fish into that net, he will bring every one of his sheep into the fold. Back in chapter 10, he said, his sheep hear his voice and they will come and he will never lose them. He is calling his people who belong to him, who were chosen before the foundation of the world. He's calling them to himself every day. Right now, as we speak, there are people who are sinners, who are lost without hope and don't know Christ, who are being drawn to Christ, right as we speak, all over this community and all over this campus. Christ is calling his sheep, and it is an effectual call. He will bring them. The question is, will you and I get to be a part of that wonderful process? Christ could bring his people into his fold, his sheep into his fold, or his fish into his net. He could do it without us. But what a wonderful thing that he allows us to work with him. Just like a a father likes to work with his children. He, he, He brings us into the process. We get the joy of gathering. Back in Esther, you remember the story of Esther? She was made the queen in Persia and... Haman, the wicked ruler, had come up with this plot to destroy the people of Israel. And so Mordecai, the wise advisor and uncle of of, uh, Esther, comes to her and pleads with her to go to speak to the king to stop him from this holocaust of, of of the Israelites. And she says, I can't do that. If I walk into the king's presence without being invited, I'll probably be struck dead. I can't do it. Do you remember how Mordecai responded to that thinking. He says in chapter 4 of Esther, verse 14, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Hear what he's saying, and it applies to what we're talking about with the work of evangelism. Christ is going to save his people. Not a single one of them will be lost. But if you refuse to be a part of the process because of your fears, because of your insecurities, because you're so focused on what you can't do, because you're so busy, you're so tied up with everything else, if you refuse to be a part of that process, he's going to save his people, but you're going to miss out on the blessing of being a part of it. And there is no greater joy than sharing the word of God with somebody and seeing them believe it, receive it, and be transformed by it. There is no greater joy in this world. Why wouldn't you want it? I came across an old evangelism training booklet. I think it was written and drawn up in the 1950s just because of the illustrations that were in it. And it was called something like, You Too Can Close the Sale on the Gospel. And as I read through it, I found very little scripture, but it was full of secular salesman techniques. I mean, there's a real 
technique, there's, there's a method, there's a training that, that salesmen get to make them really good at what they do so they can close the sale. And this pamphlet was all about how you can use those methods with the gospel. And I was so angry by the time I put that thing down because that's the kind of teaching and that's the kind of mindset that had put me under false guilt for all my life thinking that I was inadequate, that I couldn't do it, that I can't really be effective because of my personality, my temperament, my gifts, my lack of education, my lack of training. Jesus says to you this morning, bring me your lack of eloquence. Bring me your weakness. Bring me your fear and trembling. Bring me your lack of worldly wisdom. I will give you my word. I will give you my spirit. And with those two, powers you'll be able to transform your neighborhood your workplace your community your campus the world jesus question to us this morning is do you have any fish secondly his command is to cast out the net share the word and thirdly his promise is you will find some you will be able to participate in this great worldwide movement of the kingdom of God. And oh, by the way, he'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, it's a very humbling thing to be called to such a high and honorable and noble and royal service for the kingdom of God. We are so completely inadequate But Lord, forgive us for the many ways in which we look to our own selves and our weaknesses and our own meager resources. Lord, change our focus. Set our eyes upon the glory of Christ. Fill us with greater worship that we might always be aware of the abiding presence of Christ. Give us greater confidence in the message that's been given to us, the message of the gospel, the power of the word itself to transform. And Lord, may we rest in the knowledge that Christ's call to the lost is effectual, that those who hear and are given eyes to see and ears to hear will come. And Lord, we long to be a part of it. May our church be added to daily because those trusts are in place in the life of our church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.